Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant and Jerry and me, Josh Clark, <laughs> which makes the Stuff You Should Know, the podcast. That's right. I thought that I wrote this article, and it turns out it didn't. That's not your pseudonym, Stephanie Watson? <laughs> no, I thought I updated. I did something way back in the day on our website about geothermal energy. Uh-huh. It might have just been an update that I didn't end up getting a, a byline for. It was probably how to survive a shipwreck <laughs> due to geothermal energy or something like that, right? Maybe. Didn't you do a bunch of like survival ones? Yeah, I was survival guy for a while. You were wearing that like bush hat, uh huh, the safari hat, yeah, where one flap goes up, uh huh, like the jungle guy from GI Joe. What was his name? I don't know. I didn't watch those. Man, that's crazy. Yeah, I know, right? Crazy. I was too sophisticated. Uh, Chuck. Yes. So, do you know the Earth is about 4.8 billion years old? It's old. Super old. That's like so old. Some say it's a lot younger. Some people do? Yeah. Science is pretty um, much in consensus on the idea that it's about 4.8 billion years old. All right. For about the first billion of those years, it was in a crazy state. Yeah. Just loco. Basically. So the whole thing supposedly formed as an accretion disk. Yeah. Right? <clears throat> and the terrestrial planets in our solar system, <clears throat> which include Earth, Mercury, Venus, and Mars, yeah. um, happen to attract the heavier elements, elemental particles, mm-hmm. which created a, a rocky core eventually. And then more and more stuff was um, attracted to this rotating, gravity-pulsing core and the Earth was formed eventually, right? Yes. Well, as it was formed or forming at some point, uh, another celestial body, which just took off afterward, slammed into Earth. Yeah. And remember we talked about the moon. This is how the moon was formed. Yeah. Just basically spit out a bunch of the Earth, and then the moon formed its own little accretion disk, and then there was the moon. Um, but when this body hit the Earth, they think that it melted. The impact melted the first several thousand kilometers of the Earth's surface, yeah. the depth just melted it. It hit it that hard. Isn't that cool? Yeah. So I, re- I raised this, or I mentioned all this for two points. One, that heat that was originally part of the Earth's early formation. It's still there. Yes. <laughs> and then secondly, the heat from that impact that eventually calved the moon. Yeah. Still there too. Wow. Isn't that crazy to think that after 4.8 billion years, the earth is still cooling down? Yeah. And that that's is pretty remarkable. That's not all. So those, those account for a combined about half of the heat found in the earth's core. The other half is mostly from radioactive decay of isotopes in the core. From these incredibly high temperatures and heat, um, the the particles actually decay. And as they decay, a particle is sloughed off. And when there's an imbalance in the uh, the mass, that extra mass is released as heat energy. So that's about half of the heat in the core. But it's substantial. It is. Uh, 4,400 miles. That's 6,400 clicks down 
you're going to have uh, temperatures of about 7,600 degrees Fahrenheit. That's that's hot. That's the core, baby. And at that core... And we should say for our friends everywhere else on Earth, that's about 4,200 degrees Celsius. That's right. Uh, and at that core, um, we're talking about rock-melting temperatures uh, creating magma, which is that melted rock. Right. So you've got the magma down there. It's less dense, so it tends to rise... And we talked about it a lot in the volcano episode. Uh, we talked about it some in the geysers episode. Uh, when uh, the lava flows, that is the magma. But when it just stays down there, it heats up water, mm-hmm. uh, underground water, and that escapes sometimes as geysers. Right. Uh, sometimes well, as hot springs even. Yeah. It can just be like an underground reservoir of really, really, really hot water. Yeah. Or it just stays there. And that's what's called a geothermal reservoir is when you have... This really hot water heated by magma just hanging out down there waiting to be used. Yeah. And so just in the first 50 kilometers, no, I'm sorry, just in the first 10 kilometers below the Earth's surface, right? Yes. Not that deep. No. There is an estimated 50,000 times more energy in the form of heat than there is in all of the oil and natural gas reserves in the world. What? 50,000 times more energy, right? Crazy. Because of all this heat. And everywhere you go on Earth, you're going to find, in some way, shape, or form, this heat that's in the Earth's surface, beneath the surface. Yes. So I said um, it's just waiting to be used. It's not waiting to be used because it is being used in the form of uh, geothermal energy. And that is not new. Uh, it goes back to the Roman times. Ancient Romans used hot springs. Yeah, the city of Bath in England. It's a Roman town. That's right. Built uh, around hot springs. Right here in North America, 10,000 years ago, uh, our Amer- uh, American Paleo-Indian uh, friends, mm-hmm. they used hot springs. They bathed in them. They cooked in them. Yeah, they used I would to... imagine not at the same time. Uh, I don't know. They could be like <laughs> Kramer. Remember he prepared that uh, radish flower as he bathed? Yeah. Yeah. A nice butt stew. Yeah. <laughs> they used to lower FDR into the Warm Springs at Warm Springs, Georgia. That's right. Uh, and the first real geothermal heating system was developed in Boise, Idaho, here in the United States. Right. Uh, but before that, it was developed in uh, Italy, in Lardarello. That was actually after it. So the one in oh, Boise. Yeah. I thought the first one was in pizza in Lardarello, no? <clears throat> so the first, and we'll talk about the distinctions in a minute, but the first. Oh, the first plant was in Italy. Right. Yeah. So that was a geothermal energy production plant. In Boise, Idaho, they used uh, what's called direct geothermal energy, which is basically where you just pipe this really hot water and use it to heat greenhouses in the winter. Or there's a lot of um, cities that get snow on the ground that have uh, basically radiant heat sidewalks where the the heat from the geothermal springs nearby is pumped beneath sidewalks or streets to keep the ice from forming. Yeah, Klamath Falls, Oregon, uh, they have such a system because they knew. Uh, we have a KGRA nearby, which is a known geothermal resource area. Mm-hmm. They have water from uh, about 200 to 220 degrees just sitting underneath the ground, and they, like you said, melt their sidewalks, they melt their bridges. They melt, it all, melt their faces out there. In they Oregon. melt anything they can with that junk. So, uh, like I said, 50,000 times the amount of energy in the form of heat just waiting to be used in the first 10 kilometers below the Earth's surface everywhere on Earth. Yeah. That's pretty attractive, man, for a few reasons. One, uh, everybody knows that fossil fuels are dirty. 
They're problematic. Sure. They require transportation. And if you think about electrical production in, in the world, um, the world uses 17.7 million megawatts of electricity, or it did in 2012. That is a ton of electricity. It is. Most of it was produced by go- gas, oil, or coal. Yeah. And the whole point of all of those things is you burn them and you create heat. Yeah. Then you use that heat to heat up water. Yeah. Use that water to make steam and use that steam to turn a turbine. Yeah. We talked about this in one of our other ones, how amazing it Electricity. is. Electricity. Yeah. That just every, everything we've ever come up with still comes down to trying to get that steam to turn that turbine. That's exactly right. That's why, that's why we use all of these fossil fuels is to heat water. Not even just fossil fuels, man. Nuclear power. Uses yeah. radioactive rods. Oh, we definitely rods. talked about it there, yeah. Yeah, and they dip it in water. It heats the water up, turns it up into vapor, spins a turbine. Yeah. I mean, like, with geothermal energy, one of the things that makes it so attractive is you're cutting out a lot of processes. You're, you're Not only are you cutting out the need to burn fossil fuels, you're cutting out entire steps, which over the course of the plant's lifetime can reduce the cost of this geothermal energy production. Yeah, and it has caught on in a big way. Uh, I believe there are, I think, 20 countries now that are using geothermal energy. Uh, the United States is leading the way there. Yeah, surprisingly. I didn't realize that. Yeah, but um, if you want to uh, really see it in action, go to Iceland, the city of Reykjavik, yeah. where basically the entire city is heated with those uh, geothermal wells. Yeah, and the country of Iceland as a whole, a quarter of its energy is produced geothermally. Amazing. Same with El Salvador. Did you know that? I did. Oh, well, I thought you were going to say I did not. <laughs> you you got me there. Um, the thing is, though, is worldwide, about 7,000 megawatts of geothermal energy are produced. And don't forget, we yeah. use 17.7 million It's still pretty megawatts. small beans. It is. But we'll talk about the different kinds of geothermal energy right after this. All right. Kinds of geothermal energy. I, I like this stuff. You know that Earth Science Jazz is me, man. Yeah, well what whatever I did for this many years ago, mm-hmm. I remember being very turned on by it. <laughs> right. I don't know if it was updating or writing. I just remember thinking, man, this is cool. And if you are a critic of geothermal energy, hold your horses. We understand that there's problems with it. We're just talking about geothermal energy and it's it's pros right now. Boy, people get so upset about alternative fuel sources. I never under gotten that you know there's a lot of money at stake a lot of geopolitical posturing and power and and stuff at stake the world's based on fossil fuels i know but i don't know it just doesn't make sense it seems like it would make more sense even for economies to like hey let's pursue it all well that's the that's the um you know that seems to be the the prevalent uh, mindset these days yeah uh an energy policy that includes everything. Yeah. Although I think a lot of that, though, is is just kind of paying lip service to the alternative stuff, and it gives you um, a blank check to pursue fossil fuels more because you seem like you're an open-minded person. Yeah, it's just weird. I just, I don't know. You hear something about, like, solar power, and you think, I think, well, that's neat. 
and I'll, I'll post something about that. <laughs> wait, wait. Were... <laughs> what does solar power make you think? Well, that's neat. Yeah. And I'll post something about it on the Stuff You Should Know Facebook wall, and people are just, oh, solar power is so stupid. Yeah. That's so dumb. Why would anyone do that? What is up with, like, Facebook and stuff like that? Oh, it brings know, out the man. worst in people. God. Give that's... a man a mask, and he will show his true face. Wise words. Did you just make that up? No, that's an old saying. <laughs> I think uh, anything that says give a man a yeah. <laughs> automatically reveals its age, you know? It's been around the block a few times. Give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day. Mm-hmm. Teach a man to fish, he'll eat for at least two or three days. Awesome. If the fish are biting. Did you make that one up? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good one, Chuck. <laughs> it's a t-shirt. I, I never catch fish, so it should say... Teach a man to teach Chuck to fish, and he'll starve because he isn't very good at catching. Can't fish. get a bite. Nope. Gotcha. He'll go to Arthur Treacher's instead. <laughs> <laughs> man, are those still around? I think they. Uh, there was one in L.A. that I remember. Seems like Captain D's really took over the market. I don't even see Long John Silver's anymore. There's still Long John's, but I mean, like it's more Captain D's than anything. Well, as it should be. Oh, are you a Captain D's over Long John's fan? Uh. I grew up on Long John Silvers. They got me with the free pirate hats. Yeah. Um, I think I like the Captain D's better. I just I just like fried fish. Yeah. Is Arthur Treacher's like an also ran just like those? Or is it like a little fancier? No, I think it was just a, another chain, but had, has seen its better days gotcha. in the past, if I'm not mistaken. I might be wrong. Someone tell me about Arthur Treacher's. Yeah, if you work at Arthur <laughs> Treacher's, let us know if it's still around. All right. Direct geothermal energy. That is, uh, that is where you have one of those known geothermal resource areas, um, not too far under the Earth's surface. That's like if you're located near a place where there are these hot pools. Yeah, and you're not doing anything fancy with it. You're just basically piping that hot water into, say, a house. Yeah. And using it as hot water at that house, which is what that Boise district did. Um, back in 1892. And you want to know something amazing? What? That geothermal um, direct-use plant is still heating 450 homes in Boise today. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and it is not just to give you hot water. Um, you can also use a heat exchanger and incorporate it into your HVAC system. And all of a sudden, you are using that heated water to heat your home as well and to cool your home. Right. So that's that's a geothermal heat pump, I believe, right? Uh, what to heat and cool? Yeah. So I think I think those are both like a geothermal heat pump is an example of direct geothermal energy. Direct geothermal energy is not necessarily just like using the hot water to heat and cool your house. Yeah, it could it also be, be yeah, exactly. Or you can just use the hot water directly to like wash your dishes or something like that. Sure. But with like a, a, a when you're using a heat exchanger or something, this is actually extremely clever, and it's it's been around for a very long time. And as the green movement's kind of caught on, stupid it's, green movement. It's this older technology that's starting to get re-discovered, uh, I guess. But basically, if you use a geothermal heat pump, the whole idea is that you bury uh, in the ground beneath your house some pipes, a closed pipe system. Yeah, closed loop is what it's called. And there's like an HVAC system in your house that uh, circulates air or say something like water or antifreeze through these pipes and it takes the heat from your house and uh, and exchanges it through this heat exchanger in the summer sends it through underground where it's cooler than it is in your house in the summer 
so that w- that water or antifreeze or whatever is cooled, which brings it back and then cools the air in your HVAC system, which then blows out through your ductwork. Yeah, just a few feet under your feet underground, it's 50 to 60 degrees year-round. Yeah, below the frost line, which is usually about 10 feet below ground. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, if, if you, you can, since it's a steady temperature, um, depending on the season, especially if you have wild seasonal fluctuations where it gets really cold and really hot, depending okay, right on, yeah, um, then you can really take advantage of this. So the whole idea is if it's say like 50 degrees in the summertime when it's 90 degrees, if you're cooling that liquid that's in turn cooling your air, yeah, that's easy. Sure. But 50 degrees in the winter, that seems, you know, n- not that much warmer. But just that little bit of warmth, that extra, say, 20 degrees on a particularly cold day, yeah. that heats up that air, which means that your HVAC system has less it has less energy to expend yeah, a lot less. in further heating up the air yeah. to, say, 75 degrees. Yeah, call it an assist. Exactly. So you're still using like a lot of the same technology, like a compressor and all of that, that you would use with, with a traditional HVAC system in your home. But- this the 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 steady temperature of the ground yeah. is like you said assisting that so you're having you're using less energy and and thus your energy costs are less as well plus it's reliable it's not you know that it's going to be between 50 and 60 degrees right all year round all year round uh the third way that you can use this is uh with a power plant like we talked about and that is when they uh like we said they generate uh, they pipe it up through the wells and they generate electricity. Uh, there are dry steam plants where they just pipe it directly uh, into the generator and power it. Right. That's, I guess, the easiest and most cost efficient. Yeah, that's that's just, yeah, I think the one in uh, Italy. Um, in where? Lardarello? I think is Lardarello, Italy. Yeah. In 1904. It's still in, in online today. They're basically like, we have this steam. Right. And, let's use it. And let's just put a turbine on top of it. And so it cuts out all those middlemen. It's just you're using the steam, naturally produced steam underground to spin the turbine to produce electricity. Right. And obviously you have to have um, a great amount of uh, luck, I guess, to be located near such a place. Right. And that's so that's considered a dry steam plant. Yes. Then you have the flash steam, and that's uh, water between 300 and 700 degrees Fahrenheit, which is super hot yeah. that they draw up through a well uh, and then use that steam to spin the turbine. That's right. And then there's binary cycle plants. So um, let's say you're not located over a super hot reservoir. Yeah. Um, but you still have pretty hot water, something that would be considered like a hot springs. Typically, this is um, between 150 and 300 degree water, um, which is as low as or as high as 148 degrees Celsius, right? Okay. And what you do is you take this water. And you use it to heat another liquid that has a lower boiling point. Yeah. Pretty clever. Then when that liquid with the lower boiling point uh, begins to boil, it creates the steam that powers the turbine. So, again, that's like an assist, I would say, probably. And then lastly, there's another one that's newer um, that's called enhanced uh, geothermal energy. And basically, it uses fracking techniques to um, create a geothermal hotspot. So they go in and they dig wells. They dig a, a deposit well, and they they dig another well, an exit well. Yeah. Right? Um, and then in between those two, they go in and just break up a bunch of this really hot rock where there's no water necessarily, but it's super hot. 
right? Yes. And then they pump water into this um, hot rock bed, let it heat up, and then they let the hot water come back up the other well. Yeah. And then they use that to create steam, usually like a binary cycle plant. And again, that spins the turbine. Yeah. It's all about spinning that turbine. All about spinning the turbine, man. All right. So let's take a break here and we will uh, finish up with, uh, I guess, the lowdown on how it compares to other forms of energy out there. All right, so here we are. Is it good? Is it bad? Well, like everything, it's both. <laughs> I'm going to land on the good side, though, for I think, the most part. I think it's typically good. The thing is, the bad stuff is so um, rarely mentioned. You know, everybody thinks like geothermal. It's as green as it gets. And there are like a really, there's a lot of, about geothermal energy that is very green. For the most part, it emits very, very little carbon dioxide compared to a fossil fuel power plant. Yes, I have some numbers on that, in fact. Uh, by the way, if you've ever driven by a geothermal plant and you see the smoke coming out, that's not smoke. It's water vapor. Yeah. So don't get all up on your hackles. Water vapor. Just water vapor. Which, and I looked this up, I couldn't find anything. Water vapor is a greenhouse gas as well, like a pretty bad one. But I didn't see anything where that, that was like a problem with geothermal energy. Oh, yeah? Yeah. All right, so uh, here's some numbers. Uh, they did a case study of a coal plant. They, meaning... They, know, scientists. The, yeah, scientists, science doers. May or may not have been funded by a front group. <laughs> uh, they said um, they studied a coal plant with uh, scrubbers, with good scrubbers, and co- emissions control technology, so basically a newer coal plant. Mm-hmm. And they said that it emitted 24 times more CO2 and almost 11,000 times more sulfur dioxide and about 3,800 times more nitrous oxide per megawatt hour than a geothermal steam plant. Wow. Pretty good. That's not bad at all. Um, however, one of the, uh, one of the concerns with, uh, geothermal is it does emit sulfur dioxide. Which gives it a horrible eggy smell. Yes, and contributes to acid rain, but, uh, SO2 emissions from geothermal plants are about 30 times lower per megawatt hour than coal plants, uh, which are the largest SO2 source. Right. So that is one of the, the, the bad emissions. Other than that, not a whole lot of really harmful emissions. No. Um, most of the problems that come from geothermal uh, energy production come from the fact that when you are harvesting hot water from these geothermal sources, um, before they used to just Pump it out. Yeah, that was an open loop system. And they figured out much anymore. Right. And they figured out that "Mm, this is a huge waste of a resource, right? Yeah. So they, they started making closed loop systems where the water would be pumped out. It would be used to say heat some other, um, fluid with a lower boiling point or however you used it to, to make that turbine spin. Yeah. And then the water would be captured and then sent back down into the reservoir to be reheated and used again. Super smart. <clears throat> it is very smart. And in that case, there's even fewer emissions than with a, a open loop system. The problem is, is that it also leads to introduction of things like salts, sometimes arsenic, other heavy metals. Yeah. Into the groundwater supply. Um, 
once it comes through and makes a cycle. So there's a, there's a threat to groundwater contamination using geothermal energy production. That's one problem with it. Yeah. Another one is those hotbeds that are used that basically use fracking techniques. Yeah. Just like with fracking, they can cause things like earthquakes or like massive earth sinking. There's apparently a geothermal uh, plant in Australia where the area has sunk about five feet ever since it's been in production. Wow. Yeah, because you're going in and you're sucking out all the water. You're breaking up a bunch of rocks that form bedrock, you know. So when you start messing with that stuff, it can have seismic um, repercussions. Ooh, that's a good band name. Thanks. (laughs) Uh, Noise pollution is on the plus side because they say it typically produces less noise than the equivalent uh, of leaves rustling from breeze. That is not bad. <laughs> Plus the 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 typical geothermal power plant takes about a lot less real estate. Yeah, you can do uh, a, a vertical system uh, if it suits the area mm-hmm. and that really doesn't use up much um, as far as like uh, spreading it out, what's called surface area. Right. Because it's going straight up and down. Um, uses a lot less water. Geothermal plant uses five gallons of fresh water per megawatt hour compared to 361 gallons uh, by a natural gas facility. Isn't that ironic? It uses less water. Yeah. Even though water is the basis of the whole thing. Yeah. And apparently binary uh, air-cooled plants use zero fresh water. Oh. It's Not all bad. It's all just down from the uh, from the earth. Yes. And for the land use, I did have one more stat. Mm. Um, a, uh, over a 30-year span, which is the time period they usually use to consider like the big impact of the life cycle of a system. Right. Uh, they said a geothermal facility uses 404 square meters of land per gigawatt hour, uh, while coal uses 3,632 square meters per gigawatt hour. Wow. That's a big diff. Yeah. I also saw that they had like a net energy ratio of like four, that for every like one input of energy, you get five in oh, return. Wow. Yeah, which is really great. The thing is, the upfront costs are very expensive. Yeah. So in a lot of places where it would be advantageous to start a geothermal energy production plant, yeah. they, they just don't have the money to set up that kind of infrastructure. It's anywhere from like $1 million to $4 million for a well to be drilled. Yeah. And with, say, like a hot rock binary system, you need two wells at least. That's just for, you know, one area. Yeah. So the, the upfront costs can be uh, prohibitive. And the same thing goes for if you're setting up like a geothermal heat pump in your home, too. Yeah, I think it's pretty reasonable. Well, with government subsidies, it's super reasonable now. With the energy savings, they typically estimate the thing pays for itself within like five years. Yeah, they, uh, for the 2009 Economic Stimulus Recovery Act, they removed the cap on heat pump system uh, rebates. So now you can get uh, 30% toward a qualified geothermal heat pump system. So even the richy riches can make out. <laughs> uh, so if you're looking at an average, a typical home of 2,500 square feet, boy, that's a typical home. Jeez. Uh, a heating load of 60,000 BTUs and a cooling load of 60,000 BTUs. It's going to cost about 20 to 25 grand to install. You get uh, 30% back, and that's about double the cost of conventional heating and cooling HVAC. Um, but... It reduces your bill by 40 to 60%, and it lasts 18 to 23 years, which is easily double what your standard HVAC will cost. Yeah. So you're definitely going to make your money back um, if you want to invest in something like this. Yeah. Uh, it's also better than wind and solar 
in many ways because you don't have to rely on the sunshine or the wind to blow. Right. It's 24-7, 365. That's the other thing. It's dependable. It's also typically considered renewable, although they figured out that um, you have to take measures to sustain a production plant. Like, you can't just pump all the water out. You have to make a closed system. Yeah. But even if you do use a closed system, like, um, the, the area can cool off for, well, over time. Like, the one in Italy has seen a 25% reduction in steam, uh, power over since the 1950s because the 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 geothermal reservoir beneath it has been cooling so you basically have to like take it easy on it you got to treat it like a little gently you know yeah and apparently you can use um if you're putting in a system not just for your home but like a a plant Mm -hmm. it can other things can be going on there it can be a a golf course it can be a, a horse trading facility sure <laughs> it can be uh what else is land used for it can be a cemetery well maybe not a cemetery yeah because you, people don't get buried below the frost line they yeah, just get true. buried six feet deep well my family does so there's uh, addressing that a lot of people say well it just takes up too much land what if you don't have a lot of land um you can a- actually build a vertical system where the pipes just go straight down yeah. rather than flat beneath your house and you'll have the same effect that's right. Uh, the last thing I have here is the, the world's largest facility called the Geysers. It's in San Francisco, right? Yeah, and about 70 miles north of San Francisco <clears throat> in the uh, Mayacamas Mountains, uh, a company called Calpine. It is 40 square miles long, um, and it powers 14 plants. And, and this thing's been around for a while. This is not right. new. Uh, 725 megawatts of electricity it creates. Enough to power 725,000 homes or a city like San Francisco. So it meets the power needs of Sonoma, Lake, and Mendocino counties and uh, portions of Marin and Napa and satisfies almost 60% of the average electricity demand in the North Coast region from the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, Golden Gate Bridge to Oregon. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Mm-hmm. That's so perfect for San Francisco. Oh, man. They're all over that stuff. That's <laughs> <laughs> great. Yep. So you got nothing else, huh? No, man. Uh, man, my dad was a HVAC engineer. He'd be pretty proud of this one. Yeah? Mm-hmm. You going to point it out to him? Probably. Uh, he probably won't listen, but still. And he'd say, what's that show you do again? <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you want to know more about geothermal energy, you can type those words in the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And I said search bar somewhere in there, and that means it's time for listening. Right? Uh, I'm going to call this organ donation follow-up from an expert, as he says. Hey, guys, I'm a donation specialist at an OPO, an organ procurement organization in the Northeast. I've been doing it for about eight years, uh, and the biggest concern I had with your show was how tissue donation was incorrectly grouped together with whole body donation. They're definitely not the same thing. Uh, Body donation for science research is completely different than tissue donation for transplant. Uh, Tissue donation should be and is grouped together with organ donation. Uh, Bone, skin, cornea, heart valve, and vascular tissue are both life-saving and life-enhancing gifts meant for recipients. In fact, when you register to be a donor with DMV or an uh, online database, you're registering as an organ and tissue donor, not a whole-body donor. Uh, Secondly, there absolutely is federal oversight, regulation, and protocol for tissue. Uh, The FDA AATB, American Association of Tissue Banks, I bet that's a fun... uh, 
conference? Yeah, yeah. conference. <laughs> uh, the EBAA, the iBank Association of America, are some of those governing bodies. OPOs and tissue banks are held to strict standards, including site visits and annual audits. Uh, lastly, I would encourage you both to do some further research into tissue donation and be careful not to perpetuate incorrect stereotypes and misconceptions. Uh, this guy. <laughs> there was an, this is from Josh Brennan. And another guy wrote in and was like, I see where Josh is going, but he's got it backwards. He said, there's too much regulation on the Oregon side. 7,000 people a year die because of the overregulation, mm-hmm. and they need to make it all for money. I disagree. And he wasn't, he was like, he sourced a bunch of academic, he's like the medical and academic communities are the ones making the call for this. The, he's like, it's not like a bunch of, you know, uh, free market zealots. Trump's not calling for it? No, he was like, doctors and scientists are saying this is how it should go. Um, I guess the, the reason I saw fit to lump those things in together is because I saw that one of the outcomes from whole body donation could be the harvesting of your parts for sale. And that well, that, that happens from time to that's time, whether what, legal or illegal or gray market. Yeah, that's what the guy, the first guy said is the gray market is there because it's so heavily regulated. People are dying because they can't get this stuff. So they're willing to go pay. He said, if you take out the, if you give the demand, the illegal supply won't have to be there. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe that's the case as well. But yeah, I don't know. I think that I think they're doing a great job with the Oregon procurement thing. Aside from the seven thousand people that are dying <laughs> every year, waiting. Yeah, isn't that funny? Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for writing in, Josh. Other Josh. Other Josh. Yeah. And uh, do you remember the other dude's name? Um. No. No. The anonymous masked author. That's right. Uh, thanks for letting us know the deal. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 